Hello everyone, what is up you guys? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Happy Wednesday, I hope you all are having a great week so far. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every Wednesday and then again every Thursday on YouTube as well and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are discussing the cases of Sean Hornbeck and Ben own B. Now this case truly is a wild one and it's actually a survival story, which is something that we haven't covered on here in a while. I felt like with all of the, you know, dark cases that we have been covering lately, it's nice to see one every once in a while that has a better ending. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. So this case really begins with an 11-year-old boy named Sean Hornbeck. Sean was born on July 17, 1991 to his parents Pam and Walter Hornbeck. However, the two of them got divorced very shortly after Sean was born in 1992. Now, from everything I have read and seen, Walter Hornbeck was no father of the year, to say the least. He was actually arrested multiple times for sex crimes and pled guilty to sodomy in 1994. Now, when that happened, he was sentenced to four years in prison, and he got released in 1997 when Sean was six years old. But by that point, he really had no contact with his biological father and it was actually Sean's stepfather that kind of came in and fulfilled that father figure role for Sean. And that was a man named Craig Akers. And unfortunately, Craig did pass away from cancer in 2019, but he really did raise Sean. Pam and Craig got married when Sean was six years old. So really, Craig was the only father figure that Sean ever knew. And he really was a great inspiration for Sean to look up to. A direct quote from Craig is, quote, he was all always known as my shadow. He grew up sitting on my lap in front of the keyboard. We pretty much spent every minute of every day together. Now, as far as Sean's upbringing goes, there really isn't too much detail about what that looked like. However, we do know that he was involved in the Little League baseball team, and he was also looking to get into soccer at this point as well. He liked to watch SpongeBob and play video games. So for all things considered, he really was your typical 11-year-old boy. Sean and his family lived in Richwoods, Missouri, where the population sat right around a thousand people, and it's about 60 miles from St. Louis, Missouri, and Sean grew up with his two older sisters, Jackie and Jennifer. Like I said, Pam got married to Craig when Sean was six years old, and Sean was actually the one that walked Pam down the aisle, which I think was just the cutest thing ever and a fact that I definitely had to include. So now we move on to October 6th of 2002, and this was a normal day for Sean. He walked out of the house wearing blue jeans and an orange t-shirt from his Little League team, and he was getting all set to ride his neon green mountain bike. It was a Sunday, so there was no school that day, obviously, and no real obligations, and Sean had plans to go over and hang out at one of his friend's houses that day. 
Now, when he went over to this particular friend's house, it wasn't too far. And so Sean would just ride his bike over there. Now, Sean riding his bike over to his friend's house is something that he had done many, many times before. He was very familiar with the path that he was taking. And so again, everything just seemed very normal. There were no reasons for Pam nor Craig to be concerned about Sean riding his bike or getting back home safely. Sean did have a curfew of 5 p.m. The 5 p.m. curfew was something that him and his mom, Pam, came up with. However, Sean did sometimes like to push the boundaries a little bit. So sometimes he'd get home at 5.15 or 5.20, just a couple minutes past five. However, when 5 p.m. rolled around on October 6th of 2002, and Pam watched as the clock kept ticking and Sean still didn't make it home, she started to think that something was really wrong. And it was about 5.30, 5.45 p.m. when Sean still wasn't home that she had a gut feeling that something terrible had happened. So at around 6 p.m. when Sean still didn't make it home, Pam and Craig got into their car and started driving around the town, seeing if they could find Sean themselves. They went to multiple different spots that Sean liked going to, places they thought that maybe he stopped off at on his way home. However, he still was nowhere to be found. Pam and Craig then went back home and started making some phone calls over to some friends of Sean's, some parents of friends of Sean's, seeing if anyone had seen him that day. However, no one knew where he was. Now, what we know now that we didn't know back then was during the time that Sean was riding his bike over to his friend's house, he was riding near Highway 47, which was about a half mile from his home. Now, again, this is a route that he had taken many, many times before. However, this time he was purposely struck by a white pickup truck, which caused him to fly off of his bike and knocked unconscious. Now, once Sean was knocked off of his bike, the driver of the vehicle then got out of his car, picked Sean up, placed him in his trunk and drove away. Now, shortly after arriving home, after their initial search of just canvassing the town, Pam and Craig decided to call the police and file a missing persons report for Sean. Now, right away, police were treating this as an abduction and the FBI got involved shortly after the report was filed. The search was extensive. They had a lot of people in the area volunteering on foot, horseback, and they even had helicopters come in and they were looking for anything. Of course, not only were they looking for Sean, but they were also looking for his bike, any piece of clothing, anything. This was a path that Sean had ridden many, many times, so his parents knew that more than likely, Sean didn't just get lost. They were very adamant that something must have happened to him in order for it to come to this. And the entire community got involved as well. Just two days after Sean went missing, they had over 200 volunteers come in and look for Sean. And during Sean's disappearance, his parents never gave up hope. They were searching every single day that he was gone. His parents made an appearance on the Montel Williams show shortly after Sean's disappearance to spread awareness. And during that appearance, a woman named Sylvia Brown, who you guys might be familiar with because she's been involved in several cases. She's a self-proclaimed psychic. She told his parents on this show that Sean was already dead 
which is awful in its own right. And these self-proclaimed psychics who like to get involved in these cases and say that they know where these missing people are, it typically is not true. So she went on this show and told Sean's parents that Sean was already dead and that they should be looking for his body instead of actively thinking that he was still alive. But that was actually just simply not true. So what no one was aware of at this point was that Sean was very much still alive and being held hostage in an apartment in Kirkwood where he would live with his abductor. Now for the first month of his abduction, Sean was chained up in the apartment. He was tied to either a couch or the bed just to ensure that he would not try to escape. His abductor drilled it into his head that if Sean ever did try to escape or ever did try to contact the police, that his entire family would be killed and he would also be killed. So it was very much a fear tactic that was ingrained in Sean's mind. And you have to remember, this is an 11 year old boy who's being told that if you try to leave, if you try to escape, if you try to tell anyone, I'm going to kill you and the rest of your family. And it's not like the person who's doing this isn't necessarily capable of that because clearly they're capable of kidnapping Sean and taking them and tying him to a couch in his apartment. And this fear tactic really worked. It worked for four years. And during that time, Sean's abductor would act as if Sean was his son. Because you have to remember, he lives in an apartment complex. And for four years, people were seeing Sean. They were seeing him with his abductor. And so his abductor had to come up with a story as to who Sean was. So Sean would pretend to be his abductor's son, and he would actually go by the name Sean Devlin, which was the last name of his abductor. Now, in terms of exactly what happened during those four years to Sean in terms of the abuse that he endured. We don't really know a lot of detail. And to be quite frank, I don't think we really need to know a lot of detail. We do know that Sean was sexually assaulted and raped throughout the entirety of his time with his abductor. We also know that his abductor did attempt to kill Sean at one point. He put Sean in his truck and drove him a little outside onto the outskirts of town and attempted to strangle him. And it wasn't until Sean told his abductor that he would do whatever it took to stay alive. He would do whatever his abductor wanted. He was at the beck and call of his abductor basically. And that was enough for his abductor to not go through with murdering Sean. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So being tied up at the apartment and the attempted murder was in the beginning of Sean's captivity. However, 
After some time, Sean and his abductor kind of, I don't want to say developed a bond, however, there was a certain level of trust that was given to Sean by his abductor because after some time, Sean was able to go outside, he was able to play with a neighbor, he was given a cell phone, he was given internet access, he would be able to go outside and ride his bike around the neighborhood, so he was given certain freedoms. Sean and his neighbor Tony would often go skateboarding and biking together, however, Tony never knew of Sean's real identity. Sean did not attend school, however, neighbors recall seeing him riding his bike around the neighborhood, and when Sean was asked about where he went to school, Sean would simply say that he was homeschooled, which was not true. He was not given any education throughout the time that he was being held captive. Now again, Sean's parents, Pam and Craig, never gave up looking for Sean. They actually began a foundation called the Sean Hornbeck Foundation that was a nonprofit charitable organization that was dedicated to the search and rescue of abducted children. They also created a website inviting anyone who had any tips on Sean or where he could be to write in, and surprisingly enough, the real Sean actually found this website when he was given internet access and wrote in in the tip box to his parents. He wrote into the website saying, how long are you planning to look for your son? And he actually wrote into the website under his real name. So he wrote this under the name Sean Hornbeck and Pam and Craig remember receiving this tip and seeing that it came from someone who had the same name as their son. However, at first they kind of thought either one of two things. One, either coincidentally, someone had the same exact name as their son, or two, someone was just kind of playing a prank on them and found some weird twisted humor in all of this. So they didn't pay too much attention to it. However, for Sean, in his mind, he said that he did this in order to kind of give them some sort of hint. Pam said in this instance, when she saw this question, how long are you planning to look for your son? She didn't really understand it, so they didn't pick up on the hint that Sean was trying to give them. During his captivity, Sean even had an encounter with the police. On September 29th, just a couple months before he was rescued, at around 11.30 p.m., an officer stopped Sean because he was riding his bike around the neighborhood around 11.30 p.m. It was late, the officer stopped him. When the officer asked Sean what he was doing, Sean told the officer that he was riding home from a friend's house and he identified himself as Sean Devlin. And he said that his birthday was on January 7th, 1991, which was actually 10 days off from his actual birthday. So he didn't in fact tell the police who he really was and he kind of altered his identity to make it harder for police to piece together who he really was. And at that point, police really had no reason not to believe him, so they let him go. Now, a big question that I've seen a lot throughout this case is, Sean had a lot more freedoms than most kidnapping victims, so why would he not use that to his advantage and why would he not try to come forward? But again, I think that there are two very big factors to remember when talking about that. And the first is the fear factor that was ingrained into Sean. He was told from the very beginning that if he ever tried to leave, him and his entire family would be killed. 
Now, along with that, there is something called Stockholm Syndrome, which we have discussed here before. And if you are unfamiliar with it, Stockholm Syndrome occurs as a coping mechanism to a captive situation. It occurs when the kidnapped victim develops a psychological bond with their captor, and it is an emotional response to that situation. And you have to remember, Sean was living with his abductor for four years. This was the person that was providing him food and shelter and also manipulating him to the fullest extent. So it is just an emotional trauma response that occurs when something like this happens. And while it doesn't happen with every victim, it does happen with some. And some professionals have said that when looking in Sean's situation, it does look like Stockholm syndrome did occur. So Sean's case leads us to another 13-year-old boy's case that I spoke about in the beginning, and that is 13-year-old Ben Ownby. Now, Ben Ownby was a straight-A student in school and a Boy Scout. He was extremely responsible, always letting his family know where he was and where he was going. Now, at the time of Ben's abduction, Sean was 15 years old, and in his abductor's mind, Sean wasn't necessarily the little 11-year-old boy that he was when he was first abducted. He was now four years older, he was a teenager, and his abductor wanted someone a little younger. So that is when, on January 8th, 2007, while Ben was waiting for the bus to pick him up from school, his abductor pulled up in a truck and forced Ben into the truck before driving away with him. Now, his parents, Doris and Don Ownby, knew something was wrong when Ben did not come home from school that day because, like I said, he was a very responsible 13-year-old boy. If he was ever going somewhere or ever was going to be late, he would always find a way to tell his parents. Now, luckily, this time, as opposed to Sean's abduction, there was actually a witness who saw the car that Ben was pulled into. Now, this witness was also a young teenager, and he told police that Ben was seen getting into a beaten up white pickup truck. Now, at first, no one obviously knew that these two cases were connected. However, a lot of people were speculating that that could be the case, considering the fact that both boys looked very similar. Both were young boys, they were white, and they had brown hair with a similar build at the time of their abductions. So it wasn't outlandish to believe that these two cases could be connected. However, having a white pickup truck is not really a key clue to narrow down who exactly was responsible for this because many people have a white pickup truck. And so it really didn't help too much when it came to initially narrowing down the search. However, what did help was when police arrived to an apartment complex simply by chance, they were there to serve an unrelated search warrant. They arrived to the apartment complex and saw a beaten up white pickup truck. And they immediately remembered what the witness said about the type of car. Now they started canvassing the apartment complex and that is when they saw a man taking out his trash. And this man is named Michael Devlin. Now both officers approached Michael Devlin and asked if he knew who the owner of the beaten up white pickup truck was. And that is when Michael said that he was the owner of the car. 
Now, police said as conversation continued, they noticed that Michael was getting more and more defensive. He started doing things like clenching his fists and his body language was very shut off. Police said that as the conversation continued, they could tell that something just felt off. So they called the FBI and the FBI met the police at the apartment complex. And that is when all of them went up to Michael's apartment together. Now, when they arrived at the apartment, Michael seemed very distant and he seemed apprehensive on letting police in. However, ultimately he did. And when police walked through that door, they found two teenage boys sitting on the couch playing video games. Now, immediately they recognized the first boy as 13 year old Ben Ownby. Ben at that point had only been missing for four days, so they were very familiar with what he looked like. His face had been plastered everywhere. Obviously, there was an ongoing investigation for him, so they knew immediately that they had found Ben. However, what they didn't know immediately was that sitting right next to him was 15-year-old Sean Hornbeck. At first, Michael was trying to play it off, saying that Sean was his godson. However, police quickly realized that they had just found a boy that had been missing for four years. So police immediately arrested Michael Devlin and took both boys in. Now, when it came to Ben's mom, she remembered getting that phone call of police saying, we've got him, and thought that they were talking about Michael Devlin at first. However, she was in immediate shock when she found out that they meant that they actually had found Ben. Doris said that the four days without Ben felt like an ache in her heart, and she was doing everything she could to find him. And then once she was reunited, she said she didn't want to stop hugging him. Now, when it came to Sean's parents, they said that the day they got the call, they were driving on the road when their prosecuting attorney called them and said that they had news about Sean. Now, immediately they thought that the news was going to be bad because the prosecutor told them that they needed to pull over their car. This is the bad phone call that they had prepared for themselves for, for four years. However, instead, the prosecutor told Craig on the phone that they in fact had found Sean alive. I literally just got chills saying that sentence because I can't even fathom what that feeling must have felt like. Pam says that she remembered looking at Craig in the car while he's on the phone with the prosecutor and Craig just looks at her and tells her that he's alive. Now, Pam remembers being reunited with Sean that night and said, quote, as soon as I got in that door, he stood up and I said, oh my God, it's my son. And we knew right then that it was him. She said that her first words to Sean were, I love you and you're home. Now, because Sean was missing for four years, his story definitely was more of a shock for people because the likelihood that someone is kept alive for four years after their abduction is very, very slim. So because of that, Sean's case got a lot of media attention. And so he was doing press conferences as was Ben Ownby and his family, but Sean and his parents also did an interview with Oprah. During this interview, his parents said that Sean had not disclosed all that had happened during his captivity and that his parents were just more so focused on having him home and helping him return to a life of normalcy despite what he had been through. Sean also disclosed that he was terrified during his captivity, which is why he never reached out to his parents. He said that he spent a lot of his time sleeping, watching TV, and playing video games. When Sean returned home, he saw that Pam had left his bedroom exactly 
exactly how it was when he was abducted and that Sean was just ready to return back to a normal life. So you might be sitting here and thinking, who the hell is Michael Devlin? Because this entire time I've referred to him as the abductor or the kidnapper, and that was because I've been saving his portion of this for the end, and I didn't want to give anything away throughout the case. But let's get into who Michael Devlin is. So Michael Devlin was born on November 19th, 1965 in St. Louis, Missouri. He was adopted into a large family where he had three brothers and two sisters, and they all grew up in Webster Groves, Missouri. His friends said that he was outgoing, he was just a social guy, up until the time that he developed diabetes in 2002 and at this time he also had two toes amputated so if you look at it that was the same year that sean was abducted so if you're looking for a trigger as to what could have caused michael to spiral and decide to do this that seems like a pretty obvious one michael worked as a manager for imo's pizza which is a local pizzeria in kirkwood and he also worked as a part-time funeral home worker at bop chapel also located in kirkwood missouri he was living in a one-bedroom apartment at the time of his arrest and was keeping both boys in the apartment with him as well now at the time of his arrest michael actually had no criminal record and the abduction of the boys was an abduction of opportunity it was a very random stranger abduction which we don't really see a lot of Typically, stranger abductions are a lot less common, and Michael had told both boys that they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Michael didn't just one day wake up and decide that he was going to kidnap Sean driving down the road. He had actually been canvassing the area for months leading up to Sean's abduction, trying to find the perfect boy to kidnap. So he had no criminal record at the time of his arrest. However, after the boys were discovered, he was charged with many different charges. However, on January 18th, 2007, he actually pled not guilty and he was held on a $1 million bond. And then on February 5th, 2007, he was charged with 71 new felony charges, already adding on to the existing ones that were filed. These charges included sodomy and abduction. The details of this get pretty graphic, but what was said in court was that the rape kits revealed that at the time of the arrest, Michael's DNA was found in Ben's mouth and also concluded that he was raped. Michael had raped and molested Ben about three to four times a day before Ben and Sean were discovered. Now, even though Michael pled not guilty to this, there was quite literally no way he wasn't responsible for this. Not only did he confess initially after the boys were found, however, both Sean and Ben were quite literally found in his apartment. So there was just, there was no argument for Michael not being responsible for this. So on October 8th, 2007, Michael ended up pleading guilty to the charges against him. Now in total, Michael Devlin was sentenced to 74 life sentences, plus, that's not it, plus 2,020 years in prison. So 74 life sentences plus 2,020 years in prison. And he is currently being held at the Western Missouri Correctional Center in Cameron, Missouri. Now his sentence does show that despite his 74 life sentences and 2,020 years in prison, that he will be eligible for parole at the age of 100 years old. However, more than likely that's not going to happen.
So that, you guys, is the survival story of Ben Ownby and Sean Hornbeck. And I'm really interested to see what you guys have to say about this one. Again, we are in no place at all to say or to judge why Sean did what he did or why he didn't do certain things because this is a situation that luckily, God forbid, any of us will ever have to be in. So I'm just, I'm interested to see what you guys have to say about this one. So let me know. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Again, if you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every Wednesday. And then again, every Thursday on YouTube as well. And you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys. Bye guys.